Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past episodes at our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. I'd love to hear from you. Today we are continuing our micro-sanctuary series with a conversation with Rebecca Moore of the Institute for Animal Happiness. That is the name of her sanctuary. And this will be our fourth installment of the summer series, the micro-sanctuary series, and I'll do one more in August to wrap it up. Rebecca had such interesting insights into numerous aspects of rescue and caregiving work and and even the future of animal sanctuaries. So we're going to jump into that interview soon. But first, I wanted to start by sharing some news, and it's this is kind of going to be a mini Glimmers of Hope segment. If you're new to the podcast, I've done in the past some segments called Glimmers of Hope, which are good news stories for animals, and I'm, I'm really due to do a full Glimmers of Hope segment. Hopefully, I will get that together sometime soon. But this is just one piece of news that I wanted to share, and you might have heard, but Neiman Marcus has announced that they are ending fur sales. And I I really feel that this is significant enough to warrant its own little mini glimmers of hope segment here for two reasons. And one is that Neiman Marcus is a a high-end fashion store. And they don't just sell like some fur trim coats or fur trim around the collar coats. And, you know, we've seen a lot of fur retailers that are that stop selling fur that didn't really have a whole lot of fur. And it, and that's good. I'm glad they did. But this is a lot more significant. Neiman Marcus has actual entire departments, like sections of their store, dedicated to full fur coats, and they call them fur salons, and they announce that they're going to be closing them all. It's such it's such great news. It's really a death blow to the fur industry, I think, and the other reason that I wanted to announce this news is is personal. Back in my early days of activism, back in the 90s, I did a lot of anti-fur protesting uh, and campaigning. And the big one each year, of course, was Fur Free Friday, the Friday after Thanksgiving. And we would often target Neiman Marcus in Union Square in San Francisco every year. And I organized uh, a few of those protests over the years. And I have memories of sit-ins in the streets in front of Neiman Marcus and being dragged away by police. And if you go to my Facebook page in honor of Neiman Marcus's announcement, I posted a newspaper clipping from the San Francisco Chronicle from the 90s. And it's a photo of me locked down to the entrance of Neiman Marcus in metal sleeves attached to other activists. And we laid there for hours uh, in protest. So Neiman Marcus has a certain symbolism for me around this issue. And I I feel that it's really just a huge win for animals. So this was, of course, back in my more radical days. I have since shifted to other forms of activism and more vegan education broadly. But I am glad we got the ball rolling on the attention, the attention to the issue. I'm also grateful for the activist who continued to put the pressure on these uh, places and continued the work of the anti-fur campaigning. So uh, wanted to definitely give a shout out to them for bringing this to fruition uh, and seeing it through and uh, and getting this win for the fur-bearing animals. To think that I may see an end to the fur industry in my lifetime, it's so hopeful. And if it's not in my lifetime, if there's anyone younger out there listening, I 
believe it could be in your lifetime. I never thought that I'd see the end to the use of wild animals in circuses, and that is almost fully gone with Barnum and Bailey uh, not using animals anymore. The pillars of animal industries are crumbling. And so many sentient beings will be saved from a life of misery as these pillars crumble. It's just incredibly hopeful to see. Okay, so let's get into our interview today, the fourth installment of our Micro Sanctuary series. And I do want to just quickly mention that there is some critique in here of large sanctuaries. And I just want to say, and I know that Rebecca our guest agrees with me that we certainly don't criticize large sanctuaries to take them down or dismantle them or want to see them not exist. No, that's certainly not what's going on. Large sanctuaries have an important place in the movement. We do support them, but some can do better both for the animals and for the humans, the workers and the volunteers. So even though these places are doing incredible work and no one is disputing that, also no one should be above critique if there are problems. So I just wanted to clarify that I'm certainly not against large sanctuaries and neither is anyone that I've interviewed in this micro sanctuary series. I think rather we believe that we want them both to exist and to work together and to work with each other and to always be working to do better. So I just wanted to clarify that. Okay, so let's now get into our conversation. So today we have Rebecca Moore, and Rebecca was a performer and musician for many years in New York City, and she has founded the Institute for Animal Happiness, and it's a nonprofit chicken rescue in the Hudson Valley area of uh, New York, and she has she she worked for over ten years in large animal sanctuaries, farmed animal sanctuaries, and she found herself repeatedly bringing home chickens who required more special individualized care and realized that there was a critical need for greater advocacy and education on behalf of chickens and being empowered by the micro sanctuary movement, Rebecca turned a small rented backyard into a nonstop busy advocacy hub, fiercely dedicated to the mission of care, activism, and change. And the Institute also produces, the, the Institute for Animal Happiness also produces the local Hudson Valley Veg Fest. They've published a Hudson Valley Vegan Guide and also presents the annual Kingston Animalia, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, a vegan Arts Uprising Festival in Kingston, New York. So welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. So honored to be here. Thank you. Yeah. And did I pronounce that right? Kingston Animalia? I say Kingston Animalia, just okay. to have a bit of a ring to it. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, we'll get to that. But first, I want you to tell us a little about you. So all animal advocates to me are superheroes and all superheroes have an origin story. So I want to know what your origin story is. When and why did you go vegan? What got you into rescue work? Tell us about you. Oh, thank you. I I wish I felt like a superhero. Oh, <laughs> you are. You are. Plodding <laughs> along. Plodding. Me and my friend Miriam of New York Farm Animal Save, we always say we're plodding. Plodding <laughs> forward. Uh, just trying to learn and grow. And so, you know, this was a journey that started so long ago. <laughs> I'm 53. And um, when I was 10... I definitely connected to animals. I would say that I, I was a New York City kid, so I didn't really have access to meeting any farmed animals. But when I saw them on TV, I could pick up on distress, you know, just on a news clip, if there were like cows being herded, you know, a segment on the news on dairy farms or something, I would always feel like I plugged into the distress mm. of, of the animals. And I got to go to camp. We weren't wealthy people, but my parents, bless them, scraped up money to send me and my sister to, you know, summer camp. And I really have to say that a lot changed there because I got to meet some little chickens there. The camp I was at, 
so I'm 10 years old. This is 1978. And I went around the back of the, the mess hall, you know, where they fed us, the, the dining area. And there was a cage with these little chicks in there. And I just fell in love with them. I just was enchanted. They were so dear. And I asked the camp counselor if I could play with them, you know, and I just, something started then immediately. I just remember like offering them a dandelion leaf and they would jump on my arm and munch it and seemed so grateful. And there was one camp counselor who was very, very kind and gentle person. I, she stands out to me. And I remember her telling me, if you breathe on the little chick, they will think you're their mother and they will fall asleep, which the, the true poignancy and sadness of that, obviously I didn't quite get at that age. I just went, oh, let me try it. And I did. And this chick fell asleep on me and it, you could have just, it, I might as well have just won some award. Like it was the most Aww. amazing <laughs> moment. I think in my whole childhood, I couldn't believe the sweet being was sort of trusting and bonding with me. You know how stars have to align. It just so happened that we got called in to lunch one day, right after I'd been playing with these chicks as a 10 year old. And we sat down and they were serving chicken mm -hmm. and I'd never gotten to make that connection. How lucky was I at that moment as a city kid to get that immediate, you know, meeting that being and then seeing that meat on a plate. And it's just suddenly became completely awful. <laughs> that was an animal that had been killed. But at the same time, and this is where the stars align in a really incredible way, because there was no internet then. So there's not all the information that people can get now. The person sitting next to me at the table did not get that piece of chicken on their plate. It was my friend Susanna, and she got this amazing dish of like spaghetti and tomato sauce and vibrant vegetables and a salad. And I turned to her and I went, why are you getting something different than we are? And she said to me, well, my family, we don't eat animals. And I said, why is that? <laughs> I didn't know that was an option. I can ask to eat something different. And, and she went, yeah, you know, we just don't. We love animals. And of course, I got completely indignant because I was like, I am the world's biggest animal lover. What do you mean? You know, yeah. it was like this light bulb went off and I swore I came home from camp. I said, I am not eating animals anymore. Veganism was not discussed or uh, taught in those days. It wasn't a thing. Even the big animal rights groups, which I joined immediately, you know, I was writing letters for PETA, was the only game in town at that point, and sending out a paper newsletter that would instruct you where to write letters uh, <laughs> would come like once a month or something. And I'd sit writing my letters to all the lab testing and farms and things like that. You know, that's how it kind of started was that chicken at camp. I stopped eating meat then, but I did not go vegan for decades later because I had the indoctrination and the wrong info that the animals for eggs, as long as they were being kept alive, they were somehow treated well and had, you know, good lives. So it took a long time still pre-internet to get clarity on that. And so I didn't go vegan until my, gosh, my 30s. Yeah, I always love vegans like me that went vegan pre-internet because back then, I mean, you had to, you know, read books, these things <laughs> called books. <laughs> and the library. You actually yeah. had to get you had to leave your home, get on a bus. Yeah, <laughs> right. Somewhere. You had to really <laughs> seek out the information. So so we really wanted it, which is great, you know. Yeah. But it wasn't even there weren't even books on it at the library. The best I could get was actually my mom did have a copy of Diet for a Small Planet, which I read later in my teens. And that that I'm glad I read that book as opposed to just an, another book about the animals experience because that laid the groundwork of understanding land use issues and issues of impoverished people and food justice and how we're using land to grow food for the most privileged people instead of for everyone. And, and so, you know, thank goodness there were some pioneers out there like Francis Morton LePay who wrote that book and there was information, but you sure had to dig. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> so 
Rebecca, you have now founded the Institute for Animal Happiness. And I, I have to say, I love that name. <laughs> it's really wonderful. So tell us about what you hope to do with this institute and, and how many chickens do you have now in your care? Where do they live? What's the situation? And I, I know that, that you consider what you do a micro sanctuary. So maybe tell us a little about the micro sanctuary movement as well. Well, um, I will try to stay on point because there's a lot in there. You might have to help guide me back if I get off topic. But um, a huge shout out to Justin Van Cleek, Rosemary Triangle Chicken Advocates, because I didn't even know I was a micro sanctuary. <laughs> you know, about eight years ago, I think I got finally decent computer, decent internet and started connecting to more people doing animal rescue. As that progressed, I learned of the micro sanctuary movement. I just, it was like a light bulb went off, a light bulb of empowerment. And here's one weird thing about the Institute for Animal Happiness. The name is to me very poignant because obviously it's a, for me, it's a dream of human happiness as well as animal happiness. And that's, we're all animals. So I wanted it to somehow be included because, and this is a bit of a difficult conversation, but I left New York City in 2008 to go work at some very large animal rescues. And, you know, choosing my words sensitively, it was a very, at times, difficult experience. The caregivers often can be a, exploited labor. And I was very interested in when I formed anything of my own in my dreams. I didn't know I could. I just thought there has to be a framework to create an animal rescue where it's not considered a bad thing to really care about the people who work there. Um, I'm all for selflessness and we all started, we all give massive amounts. We are, I'm fully volunteer here, but you know, when you even when you're on staff at um, formal rescues, it can be that you're almost you're still even if you're a paid employee, you're often going to be the organization's best volunteer as well. As far as the untold numbers of hours, you just have to give and give and give. And and um, it was really tough learning experiences, and I saw certain mindsets of human labor. Uh, attitudes um, towards labor repeated from one organization to the other. And so for me, the irony is a lot of people may form animal rescues, but this one is formed as much for the animals as for the humans who go to give them care. And part of our mission is to really center caregiving, but that also means centering the caregiver. It's hard work. So labor justice, labor issues have always been big in my life. I think that, you know, it's on a simple level, it started because as I was working at these rescues, I, there would be a special needs chicken that came in. And the first one was this rooster named Nellie, Nellie P. Rooster. <laughs> and he was a silky rooster that was six years old that had been a, a pet, so to speak, for these women in Michigan. And they drove 11 hours to the sanctuary where I worked to get him to safety because they could no longer keep him. And they knew that a rooster is not going to have uh, good care, especially a disabled one. It's going to be very hard to find a place that will see them as a valued individual. And once he got to the sanctuary, though, in that environment where there were so many animals, it was also hard in that particular setting to give him uh, special care. He could only be on soft surfaces mm -hmm. and he couldn't walk on hard or rocky surfaces. He couldn't easily be integrated with just regular able-bodied birds because um, they would pick up on uh, the fact that he had a mobility issue and then he would not necessarily uh, fit into the flock and be accepted. So I brought him home to start really giving him care. And he is the rooster that started it all. For me, uh, I didn't set out to say I'm going to start caring for chickens on my own. I was just stepping up in that environment to, you know, take these more special needs birds and try to give them a higher quality of life and in really individualized care. And then it just happened again and again at the next organization, <laughs> again at the next. And uh, so one day I woke up and I went, I, I'm really getting 
you know, specialized knowledge about this. I'm getting kind of good at this. And boy, do I love these little friends, you know, they're just amazing. Mm-hmm. And so then heard about the micro sanctuary movement by thank you, internet, thank you, Facebook, and a light went off because I've never been a person of means. We've always rented. So I don't even own land. And the idea that someone could found an organization but not be a wealthy landowner was new to me because all the sanctuaries I've worked at were founded by, and this may be a coincidence, but they were founded by people independently wealthy already (laughs) Um, and good for them for using their you know, resources that way. But it, it was like, I, I was just a laborer. I just thought of myself as someone going to work cleaning coops and barns and assisting. I wasn't a founder. And it took me a long time and reading a lot of the micro sanctuary resource center uh, posts and literature and interviews and such to start daring <laughs> to say, I'm an organization, you know, I keep care records, everyone here, I'm fundraising to get everyone medical care. I'm organizing a few volunteers that come by. I'm doing educational things in the area. It was just very empowering and wonderful. And I hope people will check out those two organizations, Triangle Chicken Advocates, Micro Sanctuary Resource Center, because anyone can step up. It's a lot of work and it certainly helps to have land or funds, but there's still so much you can contribute, even if you don't feel like you have that much. So I know that you specialize in caring for birds with special needs that have maybe injuries or impaired mobility. And I've heard that you've come up with some really interesting innovations for physical therapy and things like that, that I would love to know about. So can you tell us about caring for special needs birds? Yes, it is definitely a lot more work, but I do feel in general, people think chickens are easy. And what I really appreciated about the chicken rescue community and the micro sanctuary community is they sort of really do a lot of education to let people know that chickens need really specialized quality, individualized care in general. The differently abled special needs birds we have have come from all different situations And you can take one bird with special needs and they can require as much care as like 10 more able-bodied birds, you know? And so that's why we have the smallish population that we have because we are doing five to six hours of animal care a day alone. For instance, we have Honey, who she was a victim of frostbite at a local egg and meat farm. So she's missing a foot. We had to nurse her through the process of losing her foot. And that was almost three months process. She was otherwise seen as disposable. And that's a hard thing for a lot of bigger sanctuaries to manage. All that care that was probably two to three hours of care a day just for that one individual. Um, We have Percy, who just arrived, who has a leg deformity from birth. We have Lenny and Squiggy, who also were at a Westchester sort of you know, backyard kind of faux humane situation, um, who both have one leg that is sort of not really a working leg. So as far as innovations, we've really, there's so much innovation, as you know, in general, in farm animal rescues, there so many are trying to always upgrade the care and come up with new situations and solve problems because So often non-human animals, especially farmed animals, are just treated as disposable. So we've employed some really wonderful things like just, I'm really excited for things to warm up right now because we had great success last fall using a zip line for Lenny and Squiggy, as opposed to a wheelchair. There are wheelchairs for chickens and people are pretty familiar with them, but it's very hard for those to exist outside. They don't really go over uh, ground so well. And so we rigged a zip line and put up a little video of the test thing. And then we just lost out because winter came in. But um, we're going to perfect that this summer because we have so many who can benefit from it here. So explain the zip line a little better. So maybe yeah. on, like a little harness that's a Yeah, so it's basically line. like a, a long taut uh, wire going across the, the grounds. 
Uh, always with human supervision, of course, these birds are very vulnerable to predators and such. So you have to be there with them. You can't just put them out. But um, it's a little harness. We used a traditional kind of a sling, a medical sling, but we're, we're going to perfect it. I have um, materials to sort of really make a comfortable harness. And um, you had to get special hardware that slid along the line with no friction so that it was very easy for these very light, small birds to propel themselves across. So that was one thing um, we came up with it. It just, I was amazed how well it works. That's <laughs> I was so like, cool. I, love I was it. like, wow. I mean, the quality of life for that. Otherwise there, you know, and there, there'll be times we'll put them out just in a safe pen and they can just sit munching on the grass there in the sun and dust bathe or whatever. But to be able to exercise is really important. So I was so excited by the early tests we did of this. But I also built an indoor device for that we used over the winter that looks sort of like a wheelchair, but it almost looks like parallel bars, but it's a sling. And then I took those shower things that have like basically ball bearings on them. So they slide more. So it's almost like an extended wheelchair. So it's an indoor track, put up a video of doing physical therapy with little Squiggy and Lenny in that. And what's incredible to me is Squiggy was on her way to having really horrible splayed leg syndrome, which is a syndrome where even if one leg doesn't work so well, they become, the bird will become very sedentary and then the other leg will just go atrophy in a wrong position. Mm. And because they weren't just even left a wheelchair is so static, you know, it's just there. The wheelchairs are great. They're like physical therapy to get them off their, their keel and their crop. And, um, but this, um, track we, I saw, and I have the photos of Squiggy starting to sort of splay out. And I was like, we have to do something. And just being static in the chair wasn't doing anything, but getting her to work that leg in this little indoor track, it was incredible. And what's amazing is now she can, she can stand and move on her own. And just that little bit, you know, maybe she can't walk, just go walking, but it means the, such a huge quality of life difference for a chicken because they're just not sitting in their own waist, waiting for you to move them. Mm -hmm. um, they can get to water, you know, on their own, you just have to rig it. So it doesn't tip over <laughs> because they will bump into it. They don't have the best aim, but like little quality of things like life, things like that go a long, long way. And, you know, just different shoes for birds. We really work on getting chickens mobile who have these issues early. And I think we're getting better and better and better at it. So this is where micro sanctuaries really can contribute in one way. This is one of the ways they do. They, I think all of them contribute so much, but it is these little innovations that everybody makes that ends up helping to really change the game for the care that they will get and, and the respect they'll get. Yeah. And speaking of respect, my next question is about how we see chickens and we, we categorize domesticated animals primarily in two categories, friends and food. And I'm wondering how you feel about that and, and how our speciesist views kind of come into play when we're considering chickens, the, the general view of chickens. And of course, speciesism is when we consider one species more dominant or more important than another. What can we do to get people to see chickens more as companion animals and not commodities? Yeah, companion animals and even family members and yes. friends. I think this is, again, where micro sanctuaries do really make a difference. It is really all about not just telling their stories as individuals, but letting them tell their stories. I believe that um, they have their own voices and their own expression and trying to share that as much as possible. There's a lot of people really are the the spokespeople on this and the people who formulated these ideas, uh, like Justin and everyone that that's saying that we are their voice, we can really honor that they have their own voices. And we don't need to always portray them as victims or uh, helpless, you know, we can 
help show the incredibly empowered, intelligent um, individual beings they are. And by telling those stories and by my micro sanctuaries, I think going into the details of that, we really share the details and show them in our homes and in our lives, being loved and cared for. And sometimes we're focusing on a smaller amount of individuals. So our followers get brought in uh, really to those individual lives. And I think that's really important because I know firsthand from working at Huger Rescues, there's sort of a, a more pressure to show all these different beings and all these different stories. So you don't necessarily get to go deep in depth with each one. So it's part of the gift of being small. But we have a saying, small can be mighty. And, you know, it's been such a blessing that I just want to share that with others and empower them to come forward because you never know. You could take in one or two individuals who need support and care, but if you share their stories in depth and with all your heart, you have the power to change. And if you give them a platform to be seen and heard, you can help foster a lot of change. Yeah. And I love seeing that on social media and mm -hmm. seeing the Facebook pages like Vegans with Chickens yes. and other yeah. places where you're really seeing individuals and hearing their stories, just like you said, it's, it's really wonderful to see. Yeah. And knowing how hard it is, like knowing that these 14 birds are five to six hours of care. And my, my, I have heroes out there. Like, I don't think of myself as one. There are people I follow that I go, oh my goodness, they are, and, and they're unknown, you know, because our movement does tend to focus on like eight people as if they did everything sort of, <laughs> but there's all these people, there's like this, yeah. and, and people around the world, you know, uh, with no resources doing incredible things. Keep looking for the one that's like working in the corners, you know, eh, because there's so many people doing incredible work. Yeah. And that's one thing I want to do with this podcast is to find those people that don't get recognized that often, but are, are doing incredible work. So uh, that's what I'm trying to do here. So Rebecca, can you tell me a story of one of your chickens or roosters, one that maybe touched your heart or had an interesting story? Yeah. I mean, they all do. But I'm yeah, um, sure. I would, I would like to talk about Honey. I mentioned her earlier. Honey is a red star hen who, what, I got a call. I got a, actually a first a message from someone on Facebook I know who said that their friend worked at a chicken farm in the area and one bird had been left out in the cold, the snow and ice overnight accidentally and her foot was injured and would we take her and i said please put the person in touch and yeah i i said we'll do it and they contacted me and the person who contacted me was young very smart very caring about honey on one side of things cared enough to try to find her a long-term home but experiencing the whole disconnect communicating with them was really, really interesting and really frustrating because I went to pick her up. I drove with my partner. It was about an hour and a half, two hours away. And all I knew was we were picking up this bird that had this injury. But when I drove up to the farm site, they had lawn signs that said Black Lives Matter. and They had gay pride flags flying. Wait, at, at the, at the egg farm? Yeah, because it was like sort of a, I hate to call it this, a hipster sort of young uh, person in community quote, farm. And they had humane, a teaching. Quote unquote humane. And yeah, they're doing it all right. Humane. You know, uh, it was a strange experience going in there to receive her. I went in with my little carrier and uh, they showed me, they took me down into a basement. She was in a, one of those brooder boxes, you know, it was dark down there, lifted up the thing and the, the young guy was very proud of the work he had done. He said, I slept with her. I gave her some foot soaks. And I, I said, well, was she taken to a vet? And he said, no, we don't 
have funds for that. We don't, I mean, and it wasn't like they were dirt poor. They had money coming in from their farm. They had a business, but, but that's not part of the business model to take the animals to a vet. Yeah. 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 He said, this is not in the budget here. Yeah. I tried to have compassion and appreciation for, you know, for where this person was at and see them as someone I could maybe dialogue with. So I didn't want to, you know, I think some people take a little longer to make these connections than others. So, you know, my interest at that point was just getting her to care. So we took her home, got her to a vet. And, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the process of frostbite, but the only way to do it since um, surgeries are are hard for a lot of avians to tolerate. So you don't necessarily do an amputation, but the process for losing the foot is that you keep them gently, but consistently pain medicated. You watch for all signs of pain. And she lived with us in our house in a fully padded pen, but her foot literally had to die on her body. It was a, a very grueling process, but beautiful activists who have helped so many chickens, like they talked me through the process and, um, and we got to the other side of it with honey. And, and years later, here it is three, four years later, we found she was left with a stump and we found a tiny doll sneaker after trying tons of different wraps and shoes, socks and shoes to protect the stump. We found this, a doll high top of all things. I think it's <laughs> a photo of her that fit the stump perfectly. Wow. Put it on. And she runs, she just jets around (laughs) the yard. And we've shared video of this. I'm surprised, frankly, it hasn't gone viral because it's so beautiful. And I I had to cut off from talking to that farmer. I kept communication going because I wanted to, I wanted to try to keep communicating with them. But that's where, that's why Honey's story is so poignant to me is because she came from this situation where they're so plugged into ethics and quote unquote doing it right. And Mm -hmm. the email to me said, if you don't take her, we're going to give her to someone to make her into meat. And it was dispassionate. So that breaks my heart. And she is such an amazing, inspiring individual and such a testament to the power of care. And she does touch a lot of hearts and she does show people that uh, she is much more than what meets the eye, that she is just this individual that, you know, has a full life and it's just really beautiful. She's still with us. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing to me how, when I'm interviewing people that have sanctuaries, it's amazing to me how many of the animals come from these humane and small scale and free range farms, you know, 99% do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. You know, people think that the animals are so, so much cared for in such a better way, but I mean, these, there's horror stories of these animals that are sick, injured, uh, thrown away, left out in the cold, like honey. Uh, it's terrible. So, you know, endless, endless suffering in backyards. And yeah, you know, I, it is ironic that people think they're so different from factory farms. Right. You know, it's just the very exploitation of these beings is wrong, no matter what size the farm is. <laughs> right. That's right. And all farming is factory farming because. Yeah they're treating these animals as commodities, doesn't matter the size. Uh, So all farming is factory farming. Exactly. You've expressed concern and interest in promoting innovations in animal rescue and in the sanctuary realm. You say that we need to rethink the farm model and realize that the current model for sanctuaries mimics the farm environment as far as housing and pasture. And that can be not really for the animal's true needs and desires and and can also lead to putting too many animals in too small a space. So there's kind of a, a movement, a very small movement, but it is growing, looking into innovations in housing and and other areas of the sanctuary experience that are based on species 
true emotional needs and, and physical needs. So I know that this is important to you. So can you share what you're learning about this, what your plans are? I think that you're planning to maybe incorporate some of these innovations. Can you talk a little about this? Sure. Yes. Yeah, I think it's a growing consciousness out there. And there is starting to be more of a conversation. Uh, on behalf of my own experience thinking about this, it just started to become weird to work at sanctuaries and feel so much like I worked at a farm. Mm. Uh, they looked the same. They had the same pastures, the same housing. There was a lot of contemplation, you know, contemplation on this problematic scenario. I mean, I think when a lot of vegan activists and sanctuaries do this, there's this idea of sort of taking it back, you know, like making this barn that was a place of torture, a place of peace. I look at this setting overall as housing of exploitation, that the whole iconography of a farm is problematic. So like, we don't want a cute little red barn in our logo, or we, I think there's a lot of room really to change the game for uh, non-humans that are farmed by completely deconstructing and breaking down the whole visual language of the farm. So you're not going to go to our website and see like, you know, folksy wood clapboard, <laughs> whatever, you know, we really wanted to make it neon colors and the housing to be built almost human grade, insulated, heated coops. Again, when we get our own land, I want to go even more in this direction because I, I really believe it's almost like, and I don't want to use a trigger word, but it's like you wouldn't hold a wedding on a former plantation <laughs> or, you know, there's things that are just abominable. These are not settings to me that need to be uh, glorified. And they do promote still an idea that too many animals can be housed in a small space or kept on too small a plot of land. I think there's a lot of um, innovation starting to happen, beginning uh, on a small scale, and I think a lot of it happens with micro sanctuaries where the emphasis is more on quality and less on quantity and showing the incredible amount of enrichment that the residents need. So working on plant life, on toys, on <laughs> different structures and environments and just changing again, you know, working really hard to deconstruct that farm environment entirely. On a personal note, as a caregiver, I feel like these farmed environments are places of a lot of time, great stress for the people who work there. Because again, what has been encouraged is too many animals in too small a space. And it often comes from obviously a good place. People want to step up and help as many as possible. But the more micro sanctuaries and individuals and people that do step up, the more opportunity there is to work against this idea of having a ton of animals. You know, you have all these animals on this property um, and then it's very hard to care for so many. So we work on a lot here that the space is very kind and humane and inspiring to the people who work here. So that is very important to me, that it be a creative space and a space that honors creativity, light, enrichment, joy. That has to be in the environment because this is difficult work. But when you give that to the humans that work there, then it translates in the quality of care for the non-humans that are in residence. Yeah, I, I really like this idea, you know, these these new ways of thinking about what a sanctuary should look like and should function like. The thing that it's brought up for me is it's true. When you go to a sanctuary, you often feel like you're on a farm. And we don't want to give any kind of impression that a farm of any kind, small scale, humane, whatever, is okay. It's very important, and I think sanctuaries try to do this, but it's important to express and show people that what we're doing is very different. It's incredible. It's not a farm. <laughs> you know, this is something very different. But when it looks like a farm, 
then that's what people are going to think of. Mm -hmm. So this is very important stuff. I'm really excited to see. And I I know there's a thing now called animal centered design. Yes, that's that's the new term. And I'm really excited about that. Yeah, it's and it's again, it's a relief to hear this stuff talking about because, you know, 13 years into my own work, I I can't, I guess it doesn't, it's not a growing movement yet, but it's like the conversation is beginning and it's really exciting. And we really hope to help push that forward with what we do. We already were dedicated to it just from our experience. We were like, we have to do things differently. We just really don't want to repeat what we've experienced. So for me, just getting heat and insulation into these coops. That was phase one. That was like, we're doing it different from what we've experienced, but we have, we have so much more to do. Enrichment is another thing that's very important where most of the rescues I worked at previously, they sort of rescued animals, but there were so many to care for that. It was sort of like, just rescue them, put them, they have an area and then move on. And more of a a dedication to understanding the curiosity, the the far ranging intellectual and uh, emotional needs of all the species that may reside in a sanctuary. Spaces definitely, most of these beings are used to having, you know, just historically and in their DNA, vast amounts of space to roam. Mm. And how do you deal with that when you have to accept that even as a rescue, there's a degree of incarceration and it's still care and love and you're tending to their needs, but there's an emotional uh, fact that you can't escape that that it's still a, a confined environment. And when I see how our birds react just in winter, being confined to a a large run, you know, and they still can get outside, but there's snow, ice, they can't get hurt, you know, we're protecting them. But um, so we have like designs on sort of indoor playground (laughs) sort of ideas to come and, and increasing the amount of space for the individuals in our care. Some of your work is around the arts and animal rights and veganism. And you host the annual Kingston Animalia, a vegan art uprising festival in Kingston, New York. And in your bio, you say, quote, art is a revolutionary force and powerful conduit for changing hearts and minds. I'd love to hear a little about this. What is this festival and and what is the connection with the arts and our work? Um, thank you. Yeah, we we inaugurated the festival in 2019. So that was the first year of it. Oh, bummer. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then we had COVID. Right. Aww. COVID, unfortunately. But it was really important to me to begin that. We'd always had the growing artist database like on our website. I was an artist for three decades in New York City, literally also kind of from early childhood because what what kind of art well um my dad was a photographer of experimental theater and dance and visual artists um so I was raised going around with him as he dragged his camera and photographed friends I I then grew into that so I was doing like experimental theater and music and dance I had a band and I did this for many many years sort of just being in the New York experimental art world at a certain point, being an artist, it makes you so inward focused. I was still doing activism, of course, around that. So I think when I moved upstate to just become a farm animal caregiver, um, it was really wanting to kind of leave the arts consciously behind. And I just wanted to go like care for animals. Mm. What happened, interestingly, was um, those were difficult years working at the sanctuaries. And I came out of it feeling very depleted and very, I guess, even depressed, you know, and slowly as the Institute, you know, here I was with these birds and I'm caring for them, but it was like this missing component. Like you can't really turn off a part of yourself. If you have something in your heart, it's just very hard to simply flick a switch and go, you got, you know, that artist you were never was. That creative urge is sort of always there. Yeah. And I just found myself doing things around the property 
again, it's a half acre, it's very small, but like we had a tree fall, had to cut up the logs. And rather than remove it, I was like, I wanted, I made a sculpture called tree typewriter. And each log had a different letter balanced on it, spelling out someone, not something. And I just let that sculpture exist, but I found the chickens loved it. It became like this hide and seek playground for them. <laughs> like They would go in and out. But when I think there's a way that when something just sort of grows in the environment, a creative effort, it, it is there for the animals too. I mean, I made that sculpture just to use up those trees and not have to, frankly, cart them all off the property. <laughs> but it became this, it ended up becoming this source of fascination and something for the animal, the birds here every day to just check out, play in, um, jump on. So I feel that, you know, the artist in me, it hasn't been extinguished just because I came up here to do this. So then I just, I spent a lot of time thinking about all the animal rights and vegan art I'd seen that deeply affected me and helped me feel strength sort of when I was alone as a, you know, a person going vegan. There's a lot of loneliness. You don't always have find your community, but these great songs or works of art or powerful graphics would come my way and seemed to sort of, again, it, it, it brought so much empowerment with it in these works, embedded in these works. So it just became a natural thing that I started connecting to these artists and asking if I could link to them on our website just to share their work. Cause I thought it, to me, the art is still a form of education. Often when you go to a sanctuary, there's a lot of educational signage. You know, there might be a famous quote from Kafka or Gandhi. There will be stats or the, the places I worked with would have, you know, statistics. That's all critical information, but I don't think you can really underestimate the way different forms of communication get a message across to different people. And sometimes you don't necessarily have to say, to say verbally, this animal's been exploited. Sometimes there's a, an image or a, a song or a poem or, you know, any of the above that will manage to touch the heart of a certain person who may have been resistant to getting that information in another way. So I think we owe it as activists in the community to elevate all forms of communication on this because somebody will get reached by it somewhere. I realized it was very freeing. I went, I don't have to turn off this side of myself. So we made a festival, reached out to artists, you know, a lot of visual artists. So there was um, an incredible uh, person on Instagram, Yawinski Theater, who does these amazing little animations. Uh, so we had them screened all over the space. It was a, a beautiful environment, but culminated in this concert of poetry, music, and visual art projected on the screens. And I think these things, we're not the first, certainly there's there's amazing the Compassion Arts Festival, the Culture and Animals Foundation. There's a lot of people who elevate vegan and animal rights creativity. I see it really as just another form of communication. And it's really important to put out there. I know a lot of artists and for, they may be resistant to people in the arts community may not necessarily, quote unquote, get the animal rights information. But if their heart is moved if that switch is flipped by a work of art it opens the door to getting the education later yeah absolutely it's so true that emotion we have to to touch people's emotion and their heart uh, just the stats and, and statistics, I mean, that all is important, but that's not what's going to move people and really get them to, you know, make change and do the work. So uh, yeah, I, I, I love this idea and really touching people on an emotional level and art does that so beautifully. Yeah. And to be able to bring that, one of the beautiful things about the quote unquote limitation of not owning land and being this small yard here, what I'm so grateful to the micro sanctuary movement for is it empowered me to step up a little here with what I had, but it also forced me then our events couldn't be on a property. We don't own a big property and it's not zoned for people to come here. So we were 
forced by circumstance to go, well, let's look at venues in town to bring our, our programs to. It's, a, it's one of those cases where having a scarcity forced you to be creative. And in the end, it just makes sense, like bring the information and bring the access into community. Because to be honest, a lot, not a lot of people can get to a sanctuary. Not a lot of people have cars or can travel. You know, that's still, there are elements of privilege to that as well. And do you know someone who can drive you to actually get to a rural sanctuary? So we just evolved to go, our programs will be at little rented spaces in town. And, and then um, it's really forced us again, to be creative. So Rebecca, I ask all my guests this, and I want to ask you too, what gives you hope for the future? Oh, everyone, (laughs) everyone working, every person that is a dedicated activist and in their own way, a teacher, it's easy to get discouraged, but I just see so much cool, good work being done by so many, lots of the groups I mentioned I think that um, things are changing. If a lot of people listening to this, maybe they're younger than me, could walk in my shoes in 78 and see how little conversation there was compared to where we are today. You have to have hope when you wrap your mind around that. There's vegan restaurants everywhere. There's vegan options. So yes, it's daunting, but the hope is that we've gotten this far. So we'll keep going. I hope everybody stays strong, keeps doing their work, keeps going. Yeah, it's so true. I love that perspective from people like you and I who have been vegan for 30 years plus that we have come so far. I don't think the young people realize like how little there was and how nobody knew what vegan was uh, back then. And we have come so far. So that is really hopeful. I really agree. And also what also gives me hope is to be honest, the, the conversations about race that are really just so long overdue in the way that they're happening now, to see vegan activists of all colors, all ages, all um, kinds, you know, of people are just really being celebrated. It's just very, very beautiful and very, very just unto itself that there just is a greater representation of all the people who are doing the work. I love Black Veg Fest in New York City and the work that Omawale and Nadia, Lori Kim are doing there is so incredible. These are pioneers. These are folks who have been doing the work for so long, who really deserve to have a spotlight shown on what they're doing. And it's having incredible ripple effects and it is changing everything for animals and for people as well. I agree. Well said. It's so true. That's another wonderful aspect that we're seeing. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> and I love your name, that it's hope. Your name itself is hope. That's <laughs> so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, you are certainly one of my superheroes. So I appreciate all that you do so much. I love the Institute for Animal Happiness. That makes me happy. And thank you so much for all you do. And thanks for being on today. It was such a real honor. And thank you so much for all you do. It's really been a pleasure to sit and chat. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. Something that Rebecca and I didn't talk about in the interview is that uh, the Institute for Animal Happiness is having a fundraiser to raise money for their move. It was touched on, I believe, that they're going to have to move their sanctuary. And one of the ways of their fundraising is by selling vegan prayer flags. It's these five colorful flags on a string with farmed animal images and vegan and animal rights messages. And I got some and I love them. I hung them up in my room and they're really just colorful and fun and There's a rooster that says justice for everybody and this really cute little pig that says love all, end speciesism. 
They're really unique. They're great for a kitchen or a garden. And when you buy them, you're helping the Institute for Animal Happiness continue to spread happiness to their residents and their volunteers and anyone they encounter. So their website will be in our show notes, so you can go and support them with a purchase of the prayer flags or just by a donation or any way that you can help them. And also, please help us to reach as many people as possible with this compassionate message and give us a positive rating or review wherever you listen on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast and share this episode with your friends. And I'll just, I'll say it again, I really love the name of Rebecca's sanctuary, the Institute for Animal Happiness. It reminds me of the Buddhist prayer, may all beings be happy, may all beings be at peace, may all beings be free from suffering. Live vegan.